Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Mad Sounds podcast. As ever, week after week, I'm joined by my good old friend, Matt Maynard. How are you, Matt? Very well, William, as we head to lockdown summer. Are yeah, look, right? we are buzzing to not be going out into, or doing any indie nights. Uh, I'm, I'm right next to Finsbury Park and I'm really enjoying uh, the no gigs that are going on. <laughs> um, so that, that's, that's been absolutely great. Uh, this week, we, uh, we can safely say, because we're doing this pre um, post recording, that we have uh, just interviewed someone who's had a UK number one. Um, we, we, we've just interviewed Luke Concannon from the Zloppy. Um, an absolute pleasure. Some really uh, insightful stories and, and just a real picture of the scene of what it was like at the time yeah he's a real character luke isn't he? he's a real kind of kooky guy but i love it i love that about him um his his number one um jcb song was platinum it had sold over a million copies and uh yeah we were just sort of talking to him about what it was like to be around in that scene in 2005 going on top of the pots um yeah. and him sharing these kind of crazy stories of what he did afterwards as well when he went, you know, trekking to Palestine. Yeah. But it's it's like a life story I really yeah. struggle to keep up with. But when you sort of put it all together, it's absolute madness. Just before we go on to the interview, um, a couple couple bits of housekeeping. If you're not following us on Twitter, you know, get involved. We're, we are at the Mad Sounds pod. We've changed from Mad Sounds London um, following mass protests against our, um, you know, our, our sort of London centric. No, I'm joking. We haven't had any protests. Um, but we, we are at the Mad Sounds Pod, so get following us there. And uh, if you're not following us um, on Spotify, well, you click the follow button, you can click the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe the hell out of this, and you get the uh, podcast delivered straight to your phone whenever we put it up. We always put a little tweet out. And um, uh, on the next podcast, we've got Phil Everidge from uh, The Twang. Um, huge huge oh, Twang fans over here. Very excited for that one. Here is Luke Concannon from Nisloppy. We enter the chat just after Luke has played us a song, which will be played at the end of the podcast, so make sure you stick around. So you're coming, to, uh, you're talking to us from Boston in the US at the moment where you live. How are you finding it out there? Um, well, um, my wife and I actually moved onto a friend's farm in um, two hours north of Boston in southern Vermont in November. Okay. And uh, we were going back and forth doing things in Boston. And then when this um, virus hit, we just locked down here. So I'm just looking out on sugar maple trees and the farmers working away. And as a wee, wee root cellar over there full of last year's parsnips. So very <laughs> lucky, very lucky to be here. Yeah. And so, you're, you're kind of like, you're part Irish yourself, aren't you? Is, is that kind of does it remind you of a bit of your visits to, to Ireland when you were younger living on a farm at the moment? Um, it's mad actually. The, the, the guy, uh, 
who owns this place um, I'm renting this room from, he's like ninth generation German Irish, but you know, that there's like Barry's tea in the cupboard and Chris, <laughs> Christy Moore records. And there's something about the Irish culture that speaks to people. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It does remind me a bit of that, of um, rural life. There's so many cows out here. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to talk to you about some of the journeys you went on with Nislo P. Um, if we could just ask how, how did you guys come together? How did you two come together in the first place? John and I were going to school in uh, Warwick, Warwickshire, and, um, you know, Nisloppy, a duo, and uh, we went to this sort of crazy Catholic liberal arts school. It was a state school, it still is a state school, and um, my parents went there. Um, when my, when my, on my dad's first day at that school back in the early 70s, um, a, a kid got his arm broken by a bully and wow. like, like rough school and then and, and then probably like someone else got beaten up by a teacher because that's what it was like back then right very violent yeah and um and so they so in the interim between dad going there and me going there uh, this radical kind of um liberal head came in and he was like anyone hitting anybody immediately expelled no discussion yeah. you're just gone Mm. Uh, no school uniform so there's no longer this authoritarian relationship and we are all equals like you respect the teachers but they're not like it's not based on authority so so, so at this school or first of all i've never heard of a school without school uniform um especially in this country it might be a first um with the name behind this loppy is it is it true that it was named after a girl you had a crush on or is that just a, a bit of a warwick myth no, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Nina Nisloppy went to our school, and um, yeah, I totally, totally fancied her. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so John and I met on the school bus, and that school back then was all about art and music. And um, one of the teachers said, "Right, right, lads, put a gig on in two weeks' time." And uh, so we had to form a band in two weeks and play to like this after school thing with all the parents. And, and um, so that challenge of can you put together a band when you've never been in a band, you're 13 years old, can you put it together and do it in two weeks? That just opened everything for us. And, um, and we played Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And um, I was going to ask you, yeah, what music were you listening to? Was that the kind of music you were into at that time? Well, heavy metal. Well, I grew up in a real sort of folky family. Um, yeah. My mum's from an English family, my dad from an Irish family, and they were both really into folk and soul music, which you can hear in, in Loppy and my music. We, uh, I was really into like Steve Earle and Van Morrison and Joni Mitchell and Otis Redding, all the stuff my folks listened to, right? You too. And John in the way that maybe a lot of West Midlands kids, right, with Led Zeppelin and freaking, I mean, Slade, loads of heavy metal came from the Midlands for whatever reason. Um, John was really into like Slayer and Anthrax and, <laughs> and like, um, but he was really into Metallica because they had a really good bassist as well, right? Back then, the old Cliff Burton days. So yeah, we formed this band and we just loved it. And John was crazy enthusiastic, even as a 13 year old. And we wrote our first song that summer and sort of became best friends over a couple of years. 
Brilliant. So let's fast forward to 2004. Uh, Half these songs are about you were re- was released, uh, and it had, I guess you could say, the elephant in the room. It had JCB on it. Uh, d- at the time, did you think you had a mega hit on your hands, or did you even think it was one of the strongest songs on the album? I remember writing it, and it, there was really some joy in it. You know, it's kind of magic. It's like sometimes, like the egg hatches, and it's like a phoenix or something. You know, sometimes it's like a really little crow. <laughs> you know, you're writing a song, it's like, what's it going to be? But sometimes it hatches and it's like, oh, this is mad. Like, I I remember when the hook came to me, I was like, oh, this is so fun. Mm. Like, I'm Luke, I'm five, you know? And um, yeah. and so, yeah, I remember thinking, oh, this is strong. But I thought maybe it was a bit daft. And, you know, I thought, like, we should write serious <laughs> serious mature songs, Ma- you know? Macho man songs, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, like, Matt Matt will surely agree with me here. I mean, when, when that song came out, I was nine, Matt. You, you were nine. 13, 14, I'm Will, yeah, I'm I was nine. about yeah. 13 or 14. I remember it because it was, it, was it was nearly number one at Christmas, wasn't it? And it was number one. And then do you remember, um, Luke, who knocked you off the, the, the top of the chart and who went number one? Shane Ward. Yeah, Shane Ward. <laughs> gutting. The Ab- absolutely <laughs> That's gutting. my goal. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's no justice in the world, is there? There's when, no. When X Factor come along, the big corporate machine and knock you off. Poor, poor I, remember, I, I, remember, I remember JCB. It was massive and it, it stuck around for ages as well. And it was just such a, a feel-good song and probably uh, it's quite nostalgic for me because I say I was nine at the time and that, like you said, you kind of allude to the fact it being a bit daft but for a nine-year-old it's quite basic to understand <laughs> and it was such a nice catchy riff as well but yes say shame ward if you ever see him mate um uh, you know we'll take it to him you know absolutely we're still we're not we're not over that at all <laughs> were you excited at the time about being christmas number one was that a thing that you were really getting up for um well i'm just thinking about so so if, if you were nine in 2005 and and, and you were 11 right i was about 13 13 so we're talking so what jesus i'm really tired today i got up at 5 a.m so what I'm, t- I'm, t- I'm 23 matt's 28 so you're, around, you're around the age that we were when we got the hit right we were like 26 and by that age we were all like you know the iraq war had started three years before we were all about like being independent and having integrity and Arnie DeFranco, Immortal Technique, Rory McLeod. So it was a bit mad when it took off like that and we were kind of in all the red tops and like in the sun. And it it was just like, it was amazing. And it was a little bit confusing because everyone was just like, it's the JCB boys. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like, let's have a picture of you with Bob the Builder. And and, you know, like when we were playing our gigs, We'd be, we'd be singing about climate change and people power yeah. and like equality. And then they'd be like, what's your favorite pizza boys? Great. You know, you know, like we were. <laughs> you got tired of the lad, the lad rock brush as well, which is, is a thing that happens to a lot of indie bands. I think that was certainly their front men weren't like that at all, but they got tired with being lad rock. And I guess, just because you had this song called JCB even might have been the, the, the reason for it. Yeah. Um, you, you might have got that too. I'm, sh- I'm sure you've been asked it before and I'm, I'm really sorry to probably to like rake up old grade, but how, how do you feel about being filed under that one hit wonder category? Because 
it, surely it works both ways. You, you can look back and think, look at how many people listen to it each month on, on streaming platforms, but also look at the fact that, well, I wrote some other really good stuff on that album. Why is no one, why is no one paying attention? Which, which one do you put it in, or do you think it's a balance? I think the vision that we were working on back then was like our, the people who were really our heroes, like The Roots, um, Arnie DeFranco. Uh, I mean, you two were, when we were teenagers, they were gods to us. And, and so these are artists that release albums and make a positive contribution and they sort of, you know, integrity and everything is really important. So it was a bit confusing for us to suddenly be this pop duo, do you know? when we felt like we were a folk hip hop duo. And it was mad. It was amazing that, that from our own independent record label, we got, to, um, we got to just have a big impact. And things just happened I just could not have imagined. Like my favorite songwriters, uh, uh, a guy called Rory McLeod. He was the most inspirational writer to me growing up and he still is. And I got to then like meet him and play with him and he like came on tour with us. And my favourite author, Alistair McIntosh, he, uh, he's, uh, I really got in touch with him more and he collaborated on a song and we became friends and he, he married my wife and I in the summer. Um, <laughs> so loads of mad stuff happened and like Daniel Day-Lewis was writing to us and wow. Tony Benn. Yeah. So, so nothing but gratitude and it was just a mad trip and it wasn't, it wasn't quite our vision, you know. It, and it no. did, in a way, in a way it did sort of it sort of broke us a little bit yeah right sure. but it but it gave you the platform that you would never have had in a million years without that like it's a platinum record isn't it jcb so it's, it's yeah it sold over it sold over a million copies yeah and our label was my cousin finn my dad the kid from down the road like we were set, like selling the studios out of our, <laughs> out, of, out. Out, out of my parents <laughs> Yeah. spare bedroom yeah. and so it, it it was it was a mad thing to to be fully independent and you know uh we got a lot of respect from people because of that because we could you know we could write songs like england uprise with benjamin zephaniah and a lot of stuff that other in the mainstream artists couldn't really do because yeah. you'd be at least back then i think there's a lot more independence now stormzy can now at the Brits, like go after Theresa May because of austerity or Boris and the government. Um, that wasn't happening in the mainstream in the mid noughties. No, it's it, it's weird, really, that you talk about this kind of mad trip because it, it's it's a shame that you sort of use that word trip because it, you want it to be a bit more of a trip. You want it to be a, a real long-standing impact on popular culture. You work with Gavin Monaghan, we saw. Um, who worked with editors, Ocean Colour Scene, Twang. We're basically reeling off our indie night playlist here. Um, what was working? What was working with him like? Because he's worked with some pretty big hitters in the. Yeah, he's a fucking lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> he's an absolute lunatic. <laughs> he's mad, right? Like, like we'd be working with him, and it, and it would turn out that he was like on the. Commonwealth Games judo team in the 80s and like um, <laughs> one day one day when we were working with him we went to the park to um, to just like have a break and we had a crate of 
Lark is with us. Um, these this big crew of homeless guys were in the park. And they're like, oh, mate, oh, mate. And so Gav, like, walks straight up to all of them because his rule is, like, if someone goes, oh, mate, like, you have to, like, you don't just ignore it. So he just, like, he just, like, walks into the middle of this sort of gang. He's like, all right, that's how you're doing. And, um, and like, yeah. And then they sort of, like, um, wanted wanted all the beer and they all turned out to be like Falklands veterans and Gav almost Gal, Gav almost got us killed. But basically basically he's a West Midlands gem. His studio is out of his back garden. The first song we did with him was Magic Garden Studios. Just super enthusiastic, super driven. Um we just had a laugh. And he understood that, you know, we were into like classic soul records and John Martin and Danny Thompson and into hip hop. So he could bring all of that together. Great. And, and another, another connection of yours, obviously, as you were talking about were the people that, you know, you had access to and, and that you, people wrote to you, but you also inspired as it's well documented Ed Sheeran. So the first thing I would say about that is um, there's very few artists who give such a debt of gratitude to the people that influenced them in the way that Ed Sheeran has done to you. So publicly as well. So how does that make you feel that someone, he's not just anyone either. It, it happens to be, you know, probably the biggest recording artist in the UK of his generation. And he's indebted to you. It is pretty humbling. Like sometimes I've been really jealous cause I'm just like, I'm just like, dude, I want to have a big impact with my music and you're having like the biggest impact ever (laughs) (laughs) of anyone ever. (laughs) I mean, that's what it feels like. Right. Cause I remember he would come to the Nisloppy gigs and he was our work. He was our work experience kid. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think he just gets it. Like he gets that, you know, I think, his big influences would be Nisloppy, Damien Rice, Van Morrison. I think he probably just gets the fact that Damien and Van got the recognition. <laughs> Nisloppy didn't so much. Right. So maybe he's making up for that. And when I saw him play live, um, when he came to Boston a couple of years ago, it was pretty beautiful just to see that scene that we were on in the the mid 2000s, which was about bringing folk and hip hop together and soul and about the folk tradition of we are, we the people, right? Like we shall overcome someday. We are doing something together. And the real role of a folk singer like Woody Guthrie or like Peggy Seeger is to serve the people. It's not to be up on a stage and be like, we're gods and you Mm. shall be our fans. It's to actually um, to to play for the people and give them the best you can. Do you, and, do you think and, there's um, sorry? And, to... and, 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 and so and so Ed took that. Yeah. Ed took that spirit and seeing him play in Boston was amazing. And it, it and it wasn't our spirit. It was part of what we were channeling at that time. And other artists on the scene with us too were channeling, like Gary Dunn or VJ Kishore or Jimmy Davis. So it's just cool to see what was an underground indie thing become literally the biggest live show in the whole world. 
And where, would you say there's anyone else at the moment that you feel is is basically bringing that music to the people and, and treating it as one? Because you're right that there are people who can certainly carry the message because of their following and, and how many and you know how many records they can sell. But it's not about that. It's about do the fans actually make the connection? I mean, which actually leads me on to another interesting story that I, I heard you tell um, when you were on your friend's podcast a couple of years ago, which was about when you went on top of the pops um, and you had this burning desire to interrupt your song when with a political speech at the time obviously the issues were the the Iraq war and you say that you know you didn't because you thought of all the people around you that had built up this band to what it was and it wasn't just your livelihood that you'd be affecting it would be theirs as well but you said on this podcast that actually now you know when now you've seen the bigger picture that you regret not doing anything um because I guess the bigger picture is more important than than this lock be the band um so yeah, I kind of just wanted to uh, to ask you about that again, revisit that, and and had you had any other thoughts about it? Did anyone ask you about it after the podcast? Yeah, I'm disappointed. I feel disappointed with myself because respect is important to me, and we just want to think about the fact that we had a moment live on top of the pops in 2005, where um, whatever four million live viewers, whatever yeah. it was back then, and I would have just loved to have said. Stop the war, bring our troops home, no more blood for oil. You know, this is a racist yeah. war. I just felt like we wouldn't have been doing it if it was in um, a white country, to be honest. There was this demonization of Muslims, which has carried on. And it would have been courageous just to open my heart and go for it. And my heart was really telling me to do it. And then I got scared. Yeah. Like, I was like, this is also John's life and livelihood and career. Yeah. And um and whatever I just thought we would have gotten shut down. Nobody else would have had us on and um yeah, I was afraid of the re- repercussions and I want to live a life that goes beyond that. If you'd have done it, how do you think that he, John would have reacted and and the rest of, you know, the label, the family label that was running the business? Well, it's mad, you know, because um talking to John a year ago, he said, I remember at the time, actually, I remember at the time, what I did was I wrote a message on my shirt and I just wrote, uh, no to nuclear, yes to the heart. That was what I felt I could get away with in that moment. Um, and like, you know, no to the nuclear power plants that were being built, etc. And and John afterwards was like, he was talking to his mum on the way home in the car. He was like, oh, Luke wrote this on his shirt and I wouldn't have had the courage to do that. So it was like, oh, maybe he would have been actually happy. Mm. It's true that the fear of what other people will think or say is one thing that I have to get over. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it would have absolutely. been a significant thing to do. So <laughs> I, think, I think what you could look back at, you could look back at that though and go, there's a lot of artists well, that will go on top of the pops that wouldn't even think twice about doing anything like that. They turn up, play their song and, and go away. The fact that you thought about that and the fact that you wanted to use your, I don't know how to phrase this, one shot of glory or your one TV appearance to make, to, to convey the message that you wanted to is I'm sure anyone listening to this will, will agree that that's admirable in its own right. So um, I'm, I'm sure looking back, I mean, I'm not sure nine year old me was, um, watching that specific episode of Top of the Pops. Um, but uh, if, I, um, if I was, I, at the time, I wouldn't have got what the message meant. But looking back, it, it would have been a moment. But you know what? Still. 
You can't. It's, yeah, you can. You can't, can't regret that. Can't. I don't reg- think. Can't regret that at all. Like, I don't think. Yeah, you should regret not. Actually, you should regret sabotaging top of the pot. Even though <laughs> the message would have been worthy. You know, you, you made your decision based on the lives yeah, but, of other people, and you and that must be commended as well. You know, you did have to think about that. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I think. I think it would have just been a mad trip, you know. I said to, I said to my mentor, I told him about it, and he was like, "Might have gotten you some crazy press." It would have gotten you some mean? crazy press. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know I mean, like we might have been on the fucking cover of the the newspapers the next morning. Like, yeah. novelty one hit wonders make anti-war rant. <laughs> but but was it live? Was it live then? Back in the day, yeah. yeah. In and there, they, it was live. And okay. they put they put real pressure on artists to mime uh, yeah they did i remember that or you just have the instrumental and the singer sings yeah so i could have gone around if they if, but we were just like no we do live that's just what we're about that, that's know. the best of both worlds surely having your hit playing in the background while you're making the anti-war rant it's got, the, <laughs> got everything isn't it <laughs> And also, I don't think Shane Ward would have done. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't think Shane Ward would have done the political spit or thought about doing it. If he did, yeah. maybe he stole that idea off you. As far as I'm aware, I haven't seen any of yeah. Shane. And <laughs> the war in Iraq, also by JCB. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, let, let's move. Uh, let's move on. Fit. You went solo. Uh, um, second time. Well, there was a second album, of course, wasn't there? Second album. Oh, sorry. The second the, the Sophie album, Make It Happen. That was um, March 2008, and a couple of years after that, you'd you, you split. What was the What was the reason for the split? We had been going at it really since 2001, and John sets a hell of a pace. He works right. hard. Like we'd get in at 3 a.m. after a gig somewhere and he would get up at like seven run 10 miles do two hours of jazz practice two hours of classical practice do myspace or a blog and then get in the car and we go to the next gig wow jesus so so so, and i think anyone who was at those gigs back in the day will tell you that he was a phenomenon up there he's beatboxing playing the double bass he's playing percussion um i've i've very very rarely maybe never seen a musician that just leaves the jewel on the floor like him um we opened for christina aguilera at wembley and um she had the she had the very best uh r&b pop session musicians from america like top flight session players yeah and we did our set and we came off and they were all just waiting by the side of the stage for John just to be like, man, oh my God, man, that was unreal. <laughs> and, um, he, you know, he's just, he's, John Parker is an animal. So, you know, that pace of sleeping not enough and just going at it and gigging and running a record label and trying to do it with ethics, like we'd get trains to gigs in Europe rather than fly. Uh, it was mental and we could we didn't look after our relationships enough so it was just like mental 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 yeah we're also in a business then competing with major record label budgets so mm. another act like we play a gig with jamie cunham um he's got the promotion budget of um a major international corporation so we just we just burn out and um we all need to spend give time to our relationships and time to our own well-being and if we don't things crash so we crashed yeah 
Right. Are you still are you still close with John now? Are you still good friends or was that he was he was best man at my wedding in the summer. Lovely. Oh, congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. So, so we're play, glad to you, hear. Did you play your own wedding? That is, <laughs> uh, did you get someone else to do it? He's loppy. <laughs> just get them to do it. <laughs> um, John actually wrote this really nice like five eight wedding march uh, that played us out of the um, ceremony and so. Just quickly going back to you being a solo artist, there was a bit of a gap as well, wasn't there? You went on like a, a solo trip to Palestine, right? That must have completely affected you as a person and who you are today from that trip, going from Nislopi to, to the hitchhiking to Palestine. Thank you for what a good job you've done on the old research. <laughs> Extra points for listening to Love and Courage podcast. Thank you. No worries. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so... Basically, burnt out, pretty heartbroken. I'd always wanted to go on a proper mission traveling and hadn't been able to because we've been so busy. And so I just took 2009 out and I hitchhiked from England to Palestine. And uh, on on the way, I always wanted to see what were the virgin forests of Europe like before we clear cut them. And um, the biggest virgin forests in Europe are in Transylvania and in Poland. So I, I hitchhiked through Transylvania and the first night out in the woods, I was underneath a tarp, so totally open and it got dark and I just heard this like coming through the woods towards me and it just followed the path I'd taken. I was totally in, in, in the wild, like no trail. I was just walking through the, the wild woods and then it stopped like 20 feet from me and I could just hear this massive muzzle just going like, and, um, and it turns out there's this area famous for European brown bears. Oh, God. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it just was like smelling That's me. It was, it was just smelling me. And I was just like peering out through the dark. And, uh, and then it just walked around my camp and went off into Well, the you're night. supposed to stay still if you see a, bear, see a bear, aren't you? So is that what you did? Yeah, but not intentionally. My heart was just mad beating. And I was just like, I was just like, and I was like, I should be more scared. But um, yeah, it walked off. And I think things like that and having a mentor like Alistair McIntosh, oh, sorry, I'm totally going off on one, but it's exciting to share the stories. Yeah, of course. Basically, he'd said to me, you know, to, um, to really listen deeply, like what's, what's, in your, what's in your heart of hearts, what's in your inmost soul. And on a mountain like that, after like an experience with a bear, um, I was just really considering, should I carry on being a songwriter? What should I do? Um, uh, now I'm totally out on my own, uh, uh, no team or anything. And I just really got this strong feeling like just go for broke. So that pilgrimage really sorted my head out. I recommend it. Go on, do something absolutely mental. Go out on a limb. Yeah. Start a, music, a, pod- start a music podcast. That's it. <laughs> That's about our ceiling of mental. But <laughs> it's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. We've, we've worked out. We'll work record live in, in the forest uh, in, in Poland, in the Transylvanian park in the forest. That's what, that's what we'll be, do next. be our first live gig. We'll play to the bears. I've heard they're big fans. No, I just quickly wanted to ask you about the solo stuff before you go, Luke. Um, so obviously, you know, would you say that your solo music you're now able to have a bit more of your own passions and, and inputs in, into the lyrics. And 
but also how does it make you feel that that maybe won't be that stuff isn't going to be heard as by the same number of people that we're hearing your song like jcb song which isn't quite as deep and meaningful maybe i need to learn to lighten up and write some write some fun hits again i feel really happy and it it ain't over till it's over sure but now you know you write about politics social injustice climate change sexuality but i'm just wondering is it frustrating that you know back then you had the real captive audience and they they're the ones that they should be hearing this message that you you've got to deliver i feel really lucky every day to do this thing and i invite uh, folk to check out the Luke Concannon stuff and I've got a new record called Ecstatic Bird in the Burning Great. Um, release date has been put back to beginning of 2021 because of the virus and everything and I'm just really grateful for you having me on and I, I just feel lucky to be alive do you know what I mean <laughs> What would you change if you love somebody? If you love someone? I'm glad that you're safe, mother. When some are passing the sickness to each other. Is the song in you singing? Maybe slowing down beginning of the burden everyone flying off towards the sun your song is in my head So goes, what would you change if you love somebody? We'll help each other through this. It's great to see you all friends. Helping your people to rise again. Fire is in the heart. We'll come back from any lockdown and we'll laugh. Every time you've fallen down, you heard a voice sing, Come back now. That song is in my head. Ah.
somebody if you love someone. One, two, three. What would you change if you love somebody? If you love someone, what would you change if you love somebody? If you love someone, you guys. What would you change if you love somebody? 